In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, on this Sunday, we arrive at church to see that we have had a change of season. Epiphany has come to a close, and we now find ourselves in the short season of what we call pre-Lent. This is a period of roughly three weeks in which we prepare for Lent on Ash Wednesday. So Septuagesima, uh, which is the name for today's Sunday, comes from the Latin word which means 70th, and then Sexagesima next week means 60th, and then in two weeks Quinquagesima means 50th. And these all designate roughly the number of days before Easter. And even though the tone shifts and things get a little bit more penitential, so we're in violet, we hear the Ten Commandments, there is no Gloria, no Alleluia, etc., it should be clear that there is no fasting required during this season. Fasting is required during Lent, that's not optional. But the purpose of pre-Lent, rather, is simply to say, hey, remember that Lent is right around the corner. It's the time to start thinking about what Lent, like, what Lent might look like for you this year. What sort of fasts or disciplines do you think God might be calling you to? Or perhaps the better question is, what sort of internal heart issues might God be calling you to wrestle through? What sins might he be calling you to confess? Since Christmas and then into Epiphany, we have been looking back on the incarnation of Jesus and then the different ways in which Christ is revealed to us. During pre-Lent, we kind of stop and then shift our focus forward, again to remind us that Lent is coming, but more importantly though to remind us that Easter is coming and that Lent is the necessary journey that we all must take in order to arrive at Easter. We must go out with Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, follow him to the cross, and then we can experience the joys of the resurrection at Easter. And the two lessons appointed for today speak to the nature of Lent, and really they speak to the nature of the spiritual life as a whole. The, at least what appears to be, or what feels to be, tension between grace and work. We learn from our gospel lesson that the kingdom of God is governed by grace. It's governed by the generosity of God, without taking into, considera into consideration what we may or may not have contributed. All will receive the denarius in the end. But then we also learn from our epistle that much effort and discipline is required, and that the lack of this might disqualify us in the end. So taking a brief look then in more detail at our two lessons, our gospel lesson seeks to give us a better understanding of the nature of grace in the kingdom of God. The main point that this parable makes is that God's grace can be neither merited nor calculated. That is, you cannot stand before God and point to what you have done, point to the amount of work you have done and say, God, look, I have earned this. You need to re reward me with these things. Our Lord teaches here that grace is opposed to this. Before God, we truly cannot merit anything. That is, again, we can't point to what we have done and then think now that God is somehow indebted to us, that he is somehow, somehow on the hook, as it were, to give us a reward. This is the underlying sort of thinking which leads to the sin of envy and comparison, which Jesus also addresses here. This is a sin of the self-righteous religious people 
who think that they always deserve more because of what they have done. To this our Lord says, Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? This reveals something to us, I think, about our human nature. Like I said, the sin of self-righteous people who, when I first mentioned the self-righteous religious person, you probably immediately thought of somebody else. But the reality is I'm talking about you. The reality is that this sin is inside of all of us. There's something inside all of us that always thinks that we're just a little bit better than somebody else. Even if it's just a little bit. So we always believe that we deserve just a little bit more. This is the same sort of spiritual immaturity and envy and pride which is addressed in the parable of the prodigal son with the older brother. He's upset because he's acting within this underlying framework of merit and calculation. I've done these things and I haven't received this from you, Father. Therefore, it makes no sense. It makes no sense why you would do this for my little brother because you owe it to me. But the whole point about grace, again, is that you cannot merit it. You cannot calculate it. That's not how it works with God. Seems like I say this every year at Septuagesima with this parable. But we need to tread very lightly if we're going to get upset that God generously allows yet another broken and sinful person to enter into the kingdom, even if it's at the 11th hour. You did not deserve to be in the kingdom either. The master didn't have to hire you and pay you a denarius. So should this not rather be a cause of rejoicing and not discontentment? And then in 1 Corinthians 9 from our epistle, St. Paul teaches us that even though, as I've been saying, grace does not work within the modality of merit or calculation, it still then does not exclude the reality of our work. Let it be very clear, Christianity is difficult and much labor will be required of us. It comes to us not as a gift of ourselves, and yet it requires all of ourselves. It is a gift of grace, but we do not receive it on our own terms. To try and receive this gift on our own terms is to forfeit it. Rather, we must do the work that God has called us to do. You've probably heard Bishop Scarlett say this, a hundred times, but it's worth repeating. Grace does not save us from work, but the futility in our work. God subjected his creation to futility as a result of Adam's sin. Remember from Genesis, Cursed is the ground for your sake, Adam. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. In the kingdom, in the reality of grace, this curse is removed. But we are still called to work. But now grace enables our work to be productive and to be fruitful. Paul here likens the work we are called to, the work of the spiritual journey, to athletes who are training to be victorious in their athletic competitions and win the prize. Paul says, in the same way we must, as the Greek literally puts it, pummel our bodies and make them our slaves 
so that we might not so that we might then not forfeit the prize or be disqualified in the end. All analogies do, however, break down at a certain point. And it's interesting this week, our gospel lesson shows us where Paul's athletic analogy breaks down. That is, only one receives the prize in a race. Only one wins in the boxing ring. But our gospel shows us that all receive the denarius in the end. So Paul's point here then is not that only one will receive the prize, but rather all who in faithfulness and discipline persevere to the end, all of these will receive the heavenly reward. The only ones who will not receive the prize are not those who fail along the way, no matter how many times that might be, but rather those who allow their failures to let them quit the race entirely. I'll say that again. The only ones who will not receive the prize are not those who fail along the way, no matter how many times that might be, but rather the ones who allow their failures to let them quit the race entirely. Salvation is a gift of grace given to us, but it's not static. It's not something that we simply receive and then put into our back pockets. It has a goal. It has a purpose. And our Lord says pretty explicitly what this is, that we would be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Our Lord knows that we will fail on this journey, which is why he always offers us grace. The lie or the deception which the devil so convincingly tells you is that because you have failed a certain number of times, that means you are unable, or perhaps it's not even worth it to try again. But let it be clear, this is always a lie. If you've ever had that voice that says, either because my sin was so great, or because I failed yet again, I should just give up, because I'm just going to fail again, or God won't receive me now, that's always a lie. And that moment where you choose to listen to that voice or not is the moment that will seal your fate. God is always giving us, even the most sinful, the grace sufficient to start again. Make a good confession, put it behind you, and start again. So I'll say it one more time. The only ones who don't receive the prize are those who quit the race entirely, not those who fail time and time again along the way. So as we pivot this morning and move forward towards Lent, may we keep these readings in mind. Remember that the grace of God cannot be calculated, it cannot be merited, and yet labor and discipline will be required of all of us. All is grace, but we must work. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.